Well, this morning marks the first Sunday of Advent, and we're beginning a new sermon series called The Gospel According to Handel. Handel's Messiah, which will be performed here on December 10th, has been an integral way that the story of Advent and the larger story of Jesus as Messiah has been uh, celebrated and told since the uh, middle of the 18th century. This happened after a man named Charles Jennings compiled a set of texts from the Bible and sent them to George Handel, who at the time was the premier uh, composer in England and really throughout the world. Uh, And Handel, in a few short weeks, put the text to music, and thus the great oratorio of Handel's Messiah was born. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, these scripture texts that form the centerpiece of Handel's Messiah and certainly uh, the expectations around Advent. And Handel's Messiah fits well into Advent because Advent is the time of the year where the uh, where Christians around the world prepare, prepare for the coming of Jesus at his birth. And we celebrate the fact that Jesus promises to come with, to us now by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we long for his coming to us when he will make all things new at his uh, second and final coming. And so during this time, the church cries. We just uh, sang, and you heard Rebecca so beautifully sing, the, the cry of the church during Advent is, Come, Lord Jesus. It's a fitting prayer and even a plea given the world in which we live. It's both an expression of our deepest longings and also a declaration of our greatest hope. And we hold these realities in tension that Christ has already come in the flesh, that he comes to us even now by his spirit, but also that he will come again to establish in its fullness the comfort and hope that he offers us in a passage like this that we're about to look at in Isaiah chapter 40. This will be the first passage that we look at during our Advent series, and it marks the beginning of uh, the text of Handel's uh, Messiah, and it's uh, offered to us as a great comfort and hope. So uh, in your uh, order of worship, you'll find that um, verses 1 through uh, 5, I believe, are in, are there. I'm actually going to read on through um, verse 11, so I'd encourage you to look in your Bible. Uh, There's a pew Bible in front of you, and that's on page 599. So I'll be reading uh, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and even and un, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, Heavenly Father, uh, this day we ask that you would draw near to us, 
that you would come to us by the power of your spirit so that our hearts would be stirred, that we would see and celebrate the promises you've made to us, this hope of comfort that can, um, that can come only in and through your son Jesus to help us to see him, to know him, and to follow after him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, of the many things that uh, this weekend, this Thanksgiving holiday weekend, first Sunday of Advent weekend, uh, represents is that it's the time of year when we, in earnest, begin to think about uh, gift giving. You might not be ready, you might not want to think about it, but it's time. So each year around this time, of course, there's countless articles and uh, experts uh, who will offer their advice about wh- how to give the perfect gift and what kind of gifts are in vogue now and what gifts we should be giving. I read an article recently that kind of took it from a different angle, uh, talking about um, how to avoid giving terrible Christmas gifts. And what this article did was it invited its readers to uh, write in and, and talk about some of the terrible gifts that re- they had received, either from a spouse or from an in-law or from a parent or from a child. Uh, and so there were lots of uh, accounts of really bad gifts that were given. Some were really funny, some were kind of sad, but this one was my favorite. It goes like this. this uh, someone writes in and says, two years ago, I got this musical jewelry box from my mom. I'm a 22-year-old male, by the way. Also, I never wear any sort of jewelry. The worst part is pretending that I liked it. I felt really guilty about not liking it because I'm sure it had some sort of sentimental value. I just sort of put it in the corner of my closet and then I forgot about it. My mom would ask me where it was or if I had put anything in there. And I'd be like, um, yeah, see, I really like it. Thanks for the great present, Mom. Now every time I see it, it makes me feel guilty about every single horrible thing I've ever done to my mother. And he concludes with, maybe that's why she gave it to me. Uh, then the writer of that article goes on and, and talks about a good rule of thumb in giving gifts. and they, that You should never suggest a desperate need for change. So don't give something that suggests a radical change in image or weight loss or some that the person might be in some sort of crisis. Even if you know there's a desperate need for change, give something that doesn't send that kind of message. And this is one of the things I think that makes the holiday season work for us. Why almost everyone likes it or can at least tolerate it because for a time it covers up all sorts of bad stuff that lies just below the surface in our lives and our relationships and in our world. That's one of the comforts of of Christmas. For instance, only at Christmas can you get together with family with all sorts of unresolved issues and all sorts of drama and just eat and sing Christmas carols and exchange gifts. And at least for a little while you can enjoy yourself and relax and forget the hurt feelings and all the unresolved issues that are going on in uh, the room and the people you are with. And even on a national and on a global scale, it seems like every year we sort of limp towards the holiday season and the Christmas season because everyone knows that at least for a day or at least for a few days uh, or so, the markets will be closed and we can forget about the economy for a while. The news cycle will slow down, hopefully, and we can just exchange gifts, and everything will be okay. So when you hear words like we have that Isaiah opens with in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, when you hear words like that, it sort of fits. It's what you would expect at Christmas time: chestnuts roasting on an open fire and a nice warm um, cup of hot chocolate, and just anything that can bring you comfort, your favorite songs, all of it, it just sort of fits. But here's the thing. 
When Isaiah and the rest of the Bible talk about Advent and Christmas, the birth of Christ, there's an ever-present crisis that accompanies the coming of the king. See, the reason there are comforting words being spoken is that something terrible has happened. These words in Isaiah chapter 40 mark a new section in the book. Isaiah was a prophet during some really dark times in the history of Israel. And up until this point, in much of what Isaiah has been sent to preach, have been messages of looming judgment. Because Israel has not been faithful to God up to this point. They have time and time again broken their end of the covenant with God. And basically, God is running out of patience. And so in Isaiah's lifetime, he's prophesied and watched as an empire uh, rises up in the north called the Assyrian Empire. And, And Isaiah has prophesied that God would use that empire to judge Israel. And not just to judge them, but to bring repentance in them. Israel at this point in the history is divided between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Isaiah is watching a judgment come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's telling his audience, who is all living in the southern kingdom, and that's where Jerusalem is, he's telling his audience, don't let what's happening to your neighbors in the north happen to you. You need to turn and you need to repent because you too will be sent off into exile. Because not only is there an Assyrian empire that's growing, Isaiah knows that there's an even greater empire coming, the Babylonian empire. And if the southern kingdom, Isaiah's audience, doesn't turn, they too will be taken off into exile. So if you read through Isaiah, this is what you get over and over again, promises of judgment, but also promises of restoration and hope. So Isaiah has been crying and pleading to his own people that they would turn from their rebellion. They would put their trust in God. So when Isaiah cries out, comfort, comfort my people, he's not offering them some sort of pseudo comfort that we are so familiar with around this time of year that never really addresses any of the real things going on in our lives, never addresses deep scars in our, uh, in, with our family or recessions in the economy or the reality of a broken world. No, Isaiah's willing to talk about all of that. For Isaiah, all is not right with the world and with God's people. And it's because the Bible is willing to deal head-on with the realities of the world that these words of comfort that we read this morning can actually bring real comfort. Real comfort to you. Maybe not the comfort you're looking for. Maybe not the comfort you would expect. But this is real comfort, and we ought to give our attention to it. So I want to look at three things from this passage uh, just briefly. I want to look at the obstacles of Advent the surprising cry of Advent, and then how we ought to respond to Advent. So first, the obstacles to Advent. This passage, in describing the obstacles of Advent, uses this imagery of a king coming on a highway. Uh, Verse 3, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When When Isaiah says prepare the way, he literally means clean up the streets, get ready, because the king is coming. In the ancient Near East, when a king would come to visit a city or a far-off land, there would be heralds and messengers who would precede, uh, precede him. And they would go and say, look, the king is coming, so you better get ready. Fill up, fix all the potholes in the roads. Make sure the town is fixed up. Remove any sort of obstacles so that it's inviting and welcoming for this king as he comes in town with his entourage and on his chariot. The same thing, there's a modern-day equivalent of this, of course, that happens today. When a president or a dignitary or a head of state enters, uh, enters a town, there's a, there's a whole team of people who go ahead of them and get the place fixed up before they show up. And what is implied in this text is that the roads 
are not ready for this king. The roads are rough, and crooked places remain in Israel. Here, the original audience. And they're just not ready for their king. Even more so, they don't want this king showing up in their city. And Israel has only proven that time and time again by ignoring the prophets like Isaiah. And so the crisis of the time is that the king is coming and no one is ready. In other words, there are all sorts of obstacles to Advent. Isaiah tells the stories of all these barriers that Israel had laid down in the road to prevent the king from coming. And the message of Isaiah and the real crisis of Advent that Isaiah is facing, that we ought to face as well, is that the obstacles of Advent, the real obstacle of Advent, the barriers are the people themselves. God's own people have turned from their king and they refuse to repent. Their hearts have been hardened and nothing Isaiah says gets their attention. The perfect example of this is King Hezekiah. In the chapter right before this, in Isaiah chapter 39, Isaiah gives us an account of the obstacles that King Hezekiah puts in the road, so to speak. King Hezekiah has entertained envoys from Babylon where he shows them all of his wealth, all the storehouses of his wealth. And you see, Hezekiah sees what's happening to the north. He sees what Assyria is doing to the neighbors in the north, and he doesn't want that to happen to him and to his southern kingdom. So instead of trusting in God's word, instead of listening to Isaiah, instead of leading his kingdom in repentance, he hedges his bets and he tries to make an alliance with the Babylonians. And just like that, the king of Israel was an obstacle, and so were his people. Israel is an angry and rebellious people, and this carries its way all the way into the New Testament at the coming of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of this prophecy, as we'll see in a minute. Because there are still obstacles. See, it's not Babylon, it's not Assyria now, it's Rome. And it's not the leaders of, of those empires, now it's Herod who is in power. And there are very few Israelites still holding out hope that a Messiah a king was actually going to come. And so this is what Advent asks of us. Do you want this God in our world? Do you want this God in your life? Do you want this king to show up? And does it bring you any comfort that he promises to do so? See, the prophet Isaiah's experience has been that while this ought to bring comfort, while this ought to be good news, oftentimes it is not received that way. And for us, I wonder if that's why Christmas, part of Christmas, is so appealing to all of us. It's so easy to think of Jesus as a baby in a manger. He's so helpless. Surely there's no way a baby being born on a silent night where all is calm, all is bright. I doubt it was that silent, but whatever. It's it's unlikely, it's it's hard to see how a baby being born in a manger some 2,000 years ago is going to interfere with your life and your quest for personal growth, and your own pursuit, our own pursuit for our own glory. But he does, because this baby is a king, and he comes with authority, and he comes with power. See, the story of Israel is our story as well. We are a people who put all sorts of obstacles in the road because we want to live life on our terms. And his coming gets in our way. Because Advent means that you are not the king of your own life. You are not the ruler over you. You are not the ruler over your circumstances. God is. And that news might not bring you much comfort, at least initially, if for no other reason that we simply want to be in control. We want to be in charge 
of our lives. But verse 5 tells us that it's the glory of the Lord that shall be revealed at his coming. It's his glory that we are to seek. It's his glory that we are to look to, not our own. And so this is the world into which Isaiah tells us that the king is coming. It's not a world of Christmas carols and smiling people eagerly awaiting a baby in a manger. It's a world that works very hard to pile up obstacles in the road. And instead of welcoming and celebrating this king's birth and arrival, we resist it. Because it means that we must come down from our own perceived thrones. We must walk away from our own uh, projects of building our own kingdoms and have him rule and reign in our lives and in our worlds. And that brings us to the surprising cry of Advent. We put down all these obstacles to prevent this king from coming, but this surprising cry is even uh, more astonishing in verses 6 through 8. Now, the punctuation in our Bibles is a little tricky, and I think it, it, uh, it, it sometimes clouds what's really being said here and who's talking. So it's important to understand, uh, to catch the emphasis of this text, because in verse 6, a voice says again, cry, telling Isaiah, you need to cry. Cry out, make an announcement, make a proclamation. And Isaiah says, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. In other words, Isaiah is saying, cry. What do you want me to cry? What do you want me to say? What's the point? You're going to come, O God, and bring judgment on everyone anyway. See, Isaiah sees the darkness. He sees the rebellion. He knows the judgment's coming. And now he's being told to comfort his people. And that, for Isaiah, he just, it's almost too hard to believe. Isaiah is caught totally off guard by these words of comfort. Even Isaiah is having trouble believing these words of comfort at this point. And yet comfort is the surprising cry of Advent. Because no one is looking for this king. This is not what anyone wants to hear. This is not what anyone deserves to hear. Because no one wants this king. Israel isn't rolling out the red carpet. And yet in spite of that, Isaiah is given these words to speak. This is what makes the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of Advent and Christmas, so comforting. That God comes to us in the midst of our great darkness, in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of our, the hardness of our own hearts. And so you have to see how shocking and radical this is to understand this kind of comfort. This king comes not when everyone has cleaned themselves up, and pave the roads perfectly. He comes to people who are in exile. He comes to people who are a total mess. He comes to people who spend so much of their time in rebellion, setting up obstacles in the road, looking for comfort in anything, in any place, in anyone else, but the king of the universe. And so the same holds true when these very words then again are spoken by John the Baptist at the opening of uh, the Gospels. John the Baptist uses Isaiah's very words to announce the coming of Jesus. You see, John the Baptist is in the wilderness, just like Isaiah. He is outside the seat of power, not with a huge following of people, but with a few faithful followers. And God, for many hundreds of years at this point, has been silent. Herod is in power. Israel has been decimated. And to all of this, God shows up. And so this section ends with verse 8. Almost a reminder to Isaiah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. In other words, what Isaiah needs to remember and what Israel needs to know and what you and I ought to always keep in front of us 
When God says the word of the Lord stands forever, he's saying he always keeps his promises. God never forgets, and he never fails. And so God had promised Israel, even before the exile, that he would one day set things right, that he would come and bring healing and forgiveness of sins. And he has done just that in Jesus Christ. And look, this is something we are asked to believe every day of our lives. We are asked to trust his, the surprising cry of Advent, to believe God's promises, to believe that what he has said about what he's going to do, what he is doing, is absolutely true in spite of the mountain of evidence and the circumstances you're facing in your own heart, in your own relationships, in your own life, and the evidence you might see out in the world. We're asked to believe this, and not just during Advent, we're asked to believe it all the time. Look, God has promised that he will provide for his people. So we can either look at the world and what's going on and just hoard our money and our resources and move towards self-protection and preservation. Or we can continue to live sacrificially and generously, offering our lives for the sake of others because God has made these promises. God has promised to be with you even in the midst of suffering. And I know that many of you are suffering in some really profound ways. Some of you are suffering in your marriages. You are experiencing a distance and a tension, a frustration and a loneliness that you never thought was possible. And your instinct is to retreat, to lose hope, to give up, to move towards self-protection, to build walls. But here's your God calling out to you, telling you that he will keep his promise, that he will never leave you, never forsake you, which means that you need not retreat you can step back into something as difficult as a hard marriage, trusting that God is with you. Some of you are suffering in your loneliness. You are carrying grief and sorrow and anger and boredom and debilitating fear. And there are all sorts of ways that you can cope with and manage your pain. But over and over again, God promises that if we seek first his kingdom, he will give us everything else that we need. But so often the loneliness and pain feels so acute and so real, it's hard to put anything else first. It's hard to behold God's glory. It's hard to celebrate his coming. It's hard to delight in his comfort. It's hard to trust in his promises when nothing seems to cure what is ailing us. But Advent tells us that we can trust God's promises even as, and especially as, we wait in hard circumstances. Because these words of comfort, they are not just pious lip service. God has brought comfort to us, to you, in Jesus. And God, through the power of his Spirit, brings us comfort in every kind of circumstance imaginable. So let me encourage you during Advent to seek comfort in Isaiah's words. His words of comfort that God shows up and keeps his promises are words to all of us, so no matter what we are facing, we need to hear. We need to hear these promises, to meditate upon them, to reflect upon them, to bury them deep in our hearts. Because the truth is, you and I will seek comfort somewhere else, someplace else, with someone else. And you will do something with your pain. You have to. You're going to do something with your frustration, with your boredom. You have to do something with how you perceive and how you navigate through the brokenness of the world. And Isaiah's invitation is for you to find comfort in the promises that God has heard our cries and that he has come. And now John the Baptist tells us that it is Jesus who comes 
to bring comfort and healing to the world. So what's our response to all of this? Well, Isaiah Isaiah offers this command, or maybe it's a proclamation in verse 9. Isaiah tells us to behold our God. Behold your God. And notice the two ways in which Isaiah tells us that our God comes, what he offers us, what this king, how this king comes to us. He comes to us first with a mighty arm, a victorious arm. You see this in verse 10. He comes to us as a victorious king. The picture here is that he's got his reward and his recompense with him, meaning he subdued all his enemies, and now he is the one who is ultimately victorious over his enemies. He comes as a victorious king. And in verse 11, that same arm that brought victory, that same arm rules in might and brings victory, is now the same arm that gathers his flock like a shepherd, carrying them close to his heart, gently leading the weakest and the most vulnerable ones. Notice how careful and how gentle Isaiah describes this king and this shepherd in verse 11. See, the comfort of Advent is the truth that there is no circumstance, there is no place where God will not enter your world, where he will not rescue you in your life. If he's willing to cry, comfort, comfort my people in the midst of to Israel in exile, if he's willing to offer these promises to Israel under their circumstances, if he's willing to enter our world in a cold, dark manger, if he's willing to die on a Roman cross so that he would overcome sin and death, then there isn't any place where his mighty arm of restoration and his gentle arm of care cannot and will not reach you. You are not out of God's reach. You are not outside of God's ruling arm and his gathering arm. And this is what we see so beautifully as we see all things most clearly and beautifully in Jesus. Jesus has the power to heal, the power to calm the seas, to subdue any power, any principality. He has, come, he has overcome death by his death and resurrection. He is utterly victorious in his battle over sin and death. And at the same time, he promises to guide and lead us, knowing exactly what we need and when we need it, knowing exactly how to care for us, knowing exactly where we are wounded, where we are weak, knowing where we need to be led. And he calls out to us, carefully and gently, dismantling our obstacles, tearing them down, standing in the way of our own self-glorification projects. And he does it because he loves us. And he does it so that we would have life in him. And our response is to behold him, as Isaiah says. Behold the one who comes. To worship him, to honor him, to trust his words, and to celebrate his coming. And during Advent, as we prepare for his birth, perhaps the greatest way to behold him is to consider the obstacles we put up to prevent God's mighty and tender arm from reaching us, and to begin to do the work of dismantling them, dismantling all the objects, all the obstacles we put in his path, our personal projects of pride and self-glory, our goals to put our own interests and comforts above anyone else's. See, all these obstacles, they have to come down. They're going to come down because this king is coming, and that is good news. It is good news for you. It is good news for me. It is good news for your neighbors. It is good news for the world. It's actually the only comfort we have. And it's the only comfort we need. 
that Christ has come with his mighty and his gentle arm, and he comes for you today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Isaiah. This cry of comfort that surprises us because we know that we do not deserve it. And yet you come in grace and power to dismantle all the obstacles that we lay down to prevent you from coming to us. It is your mighty hand and it is your gracious arm that gives us life. So God, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would love you, that we would follow after you, and that we would delight and prepare for your coming. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.